Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries, For each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com and tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. The art world knows Mark Tribe in many different ways, and as soon as you're introduced to him, you'll see him everywhere. Simply put, Mark is a renaissance man. He's developed a well-rounded career as an artist and educator. In varying combinations, Mark works in painting, photography, video, installation, performance, and new media. While maintaining an incredible art practice, he also serves as the chair of the MFA Fine Arts Department at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. In addition to being an educator and artist, Mark has somehow managed to start Rhizome. The Rhizome platform is an affiliate in residence at the New Museum, which champions born digital art and culture through commissions, exhibitions, scholarship, and digital preservation. Mark's work has exhibited internationally. He's authored two books, and we're with him now at Minus Space Gallery in Dumbo, Brooklyn, for his show titled Landscape Pictures. You are an artist, academic, and entrepreneur. You are one of the more accomplished professionals in my life, in addition to being a good friend. We're thrilled to have you on the Art Career Podcast. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm well. It's nice to see you. Thanks for such a kind and thoughtful introduction. Well, it's always nice to see you. Remind me, how did we meet? Oh, we met when you reached out to me about organizing a conversation between Peter Brandt and Dan Colin. Several years ago. At at SBA. SBA. Mm -hmm. And we've remained colleagues and friends. Yeah, we've seen a lot of art together. We've shared some good times and some bad times. Yeah, (laughs) both. I would love to start with your art and educational practices. Your exhibition, Landscape Pictures, responds to the difficulties of climate change, particularly as they relate to the wild forests of North America, yes? That's right. For our listeners, could you describe to us what we're seeing in the gallery today? Right now, you and I are sitting in the gallery office, and on the wall behind me is my most recent painting. It's called Black Brook, Balsam Lake Mountain Wild Forest, New York, New York. And it is a very naturalistic, almost hyper-realistic painting of 
a brook in the Catskill Mountains with rocks and some water in the foreground and beautiful green, lush foliage and trees in the background. In a recent online artist talk with Minus Space, you mentioned going out to these preserved wild spaces and having a feeling of nostalgia, not for something we've lost, but something we very well may lose. I know your feelings on this topic, and we've talked about this a lot. Can you share a little bit about, you know, when did climate change become an active discussion in your art practice? Well, I've been aware of climate change for quite a while, but about 10 years ago, I started to make landscape pictures. One of the first landscape pictures I made is is to my left here, but I'll, I'll describe that later. But as, as I started to romp around in the woods taking pictures of landscapes, I was reminded of the many, many, many trips I took as a kid and as a young man, backpacking and hiking in New Hampshire, Vermont, out in Colorado, California, when I was in school out there. You know, I'm a city kid, but I always, for some reason, was really attracted to the woods. And even though they can be scary and challenging, I always felt like there was something important there. I was like compelled. But more recently, when I get out of the city and into even the most remote and and well-protected wilderness areas, Mm -hmm. national parks and national monuments and such, I can't help but think, you know, what's this going to be like for my great-great-grandkids if I have any? What will this place be like in 100 years? No matter how well-protected it is, it's very hard to protect an ecosystem from climate change. Kind of impossible. So a few years ago, my practice pivoted towards trying to record or document what I think of as a kind of endangered wilderness experience that our generations, the you know generations of people that are alive today, we're responsible for what becomes of the earth collectively. And one thing I could do as an artist, I think, is to try to capture something of what we have now, which is still quite similar in a lot of ways to what these places were like couple hundred years ago, maybe even a thousand years ago. The really radical, drastic, rapid changes are, are still yet to come, I think. Do you feel that obviously, inevitably, becoming a father makes all of these things uh, move to the forefront of your mind? But would that have happened either way? Or was it with maybe the girls? Maybe because, you know, as long ago as, 20, as 1998, when we started making plans to preserve new media art at Rhizome. Mm -hmm. I started thinking about the ephemerality of art and how, especially with internet art, which can be deleted by a systems administrator with the click of a mouse, you know, somebody needed to save a copy in a kind of organized way. So we started archiving and preserving new media art. And so ever since then, I've sort of thought that way, long-term, like, you know, what's important to, to save for future generations? I love that. What was your art about before you began actively pursuing climate change as a subject? I know that's not an easy, simple answer, but... I'll try to make it quick. After grad school, I focused on new media art and and net art for about 10 years. I started Rhizome, this nonprofit organization, and, and ran it for a while. And then, you know, got into teaching and my art making shifted towards being more about politics, about protest politics and why it seemed so ineffective during the the Iraq war, for example, and all these protests, and it didn't seem to make a difference. And then in 2010, 2011, 2012, I was collaborating with another artist on a project called Posse Comitatus, in which we were filming right-wing militia groups doing training exercises out in the woods. So Chelsea Knight and I are out in the woods of upstate New York with our cameras in a blizzard. And I found myself sticking around after all the militia guys were gone, you know, with their AR-15s and AK-47s and camouflage uniforms and wanting to film and take still photographs of the militia training ground itself. Where was this? Upstate New York. Upstate, okay. Yeah. It's called the Southern Tier. Okay. It's like below the Finger Lakes. I became really interested in the landscape as a kind of stage on which the militia were performing their politics 
kind of going back to an imaginary state of nature, or maybe as a screen on which they're projecting their imaginary fantasies of one day defending their freedom, you know, or law and order or civil society or something. So I started making landscape pictures. So first it was like, hmm, this is interesting. And I started looking at how landscapes are used in first-person shooter, violent military-themed video games. Like, why do they have such beautiful landscapes? I started making landscape pictures by taking screenshots in video games. That's what we see here to my left. I'm sort of interested also in this uncanny valley that we're living through where the boundaries between virtual reality or the metaverse, as they're now calling it, and... The metaverse. You know, three-dimensional space-time that we live in on a day-to-day basis. You know, those those boundaries seem to be getting kind of blurry and fuzzy and confusing. That's for sure. Which I feel every time I look at Google Maps, right? So that's how my interest in landscape started. You know, another project came out of a commission from the Corcoran Museum, the Corcoran Gallery of Art in D.C., now unfortunately defunct, but their curator invited me to come down and look with him at their collection of 19th century landscape paintings and photographs. And I started thinking about the drones I view and military surveillance satellites and how that's a kind of aerial landscape imaging that seemed really relevant today in a time when the United States was projecting its military prep power around the world in this very high-tech way. But then I was like, okay, so I've looked at these other, you know, to speak academically, like regimes of landscape representation, you could say, or different ways of seeing land that aren't my ways of seeing land. Like the first-person shooter game, the people who make these first-person shooter games and and their audiences, that's not really how I see it, like as a backdrop for shooting people up or practicing for Armageddon. And I don't see landscape in the way maybe the, you know, U.S. military and its drone operators see it when they're trying to decide whether to fire a missile at a compound in Waziristan to take out an, you know, uh, an Al-Qaeda leader or something like that. How do I see it? I see it as like a a city kid who grew up backpacking, you know, in New Hampshire, who loves the woods, but now worries that what I get to experience won't be there for, for the future. It was that, it was really my experience of being in the woods and having those thoughts and feelings that led me to think, I got to turn my attention towards this. I want to make work that's about my own landscape ideology, which is this kind of, you know, upper middle class white environmentalist view. Not indigenous, not like, but also not like a hunter. No, but it's it's romanticized a bit, I'm mm-hmm. sure. I'm trying to build on the legacy that I inherited through, you know, museums from French and German landscape painters and American landscape painters of the 19th century and their predecessors, which I think are really problematic, but I want to sort of salvage something from that history and make it relevant today. And I think you're succeeding in doing that. Back up for a second. I don't think we just kind of jumped right into rhizome Mm -hmm. because that was such a huge part of your career trajectory. First of all, undergrad, grad school, where? You did undergrad? Undergrad at Brown University. Started to study abroad, and then that became a year off when I had like a late adolescent crisis Mm -hmm. on a mountaintop in Corsica. Aren't you still having that crisis, Mark? This is called a midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I, yeah, so I went from being really into mostly like creative writing to during this year off and spending some time in museums and looking at a lot of contemporary art, I became fascinated with art and just started making it and took basically my last two years in college, nothing but art, philosophy, and theory classes at, at Brown, Brown and RISD. I took like half my classes at RISD. That's where I learned to paint like this, taking classes in the illustration department at RISD where they had, you know... No compassion for, no sympathy for artists who didn't know how to draw and paint correctly. Like, you know, old master techniques. It's not necessarily a bad thing if you're asking me. Well, I went looking for it because they weren't teaching me that at Brown. It's coming in handy now, but I didn't want anybody, at the time, I figured out very early that I didn't have the chops to make a decent representational painting. Mm -hmm. So I started making paintings with uh, straight lines and masking tape that looked a little bit like Barnett Newman with a lot of texture. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, I can make good paintings that look like Barnett Newman. Yeah, same. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, I don't want anybody to accuse me of doing abstraction because I didn't know, didn't have the chops. Right. I mean, that was a pretty naive thing to say because you don't have to learn how to draw to be a good artist. But 
But I went down the hill to learn to draw and then to learn to paint. And I think I did. You sure did. And then I didn't use that for a long time because my work became very based in media and then very political and conceptual. And But then I, well, I, you know, I had this idea and started to, went down the rabbit hole of Renaissance painting techniques again. From a career point of view, what happened with, with Rhizome? So I finished up grad school at UC San Diego and applied for a residency at this place called Kunstlerhaus Batanien in Berlin. I had a friend, a German friend from UCSD who had done a residency there. It was a great gig. He had a beautiful studio in Kreuzberg for a whole year, like a to die for, high ceilings, huge, a solo show and a catalog. And I, I didn't get it. And I was like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to move anyway and do my own residency. I sublet my buddy's apartment when he was away for the summer, found a job designing web pages for like the first web design firm in Germany. So like, you know, stayed up all night, going to clubs and writing code and made art. And during that time, I went to the Dutch Electronic Art Festival in Rotterdam and to Ars Electronica, this big electronic art festival in Linz, Austria, both times with other artists I'd met in Berlin, just like piling into the back of a van, driving all night and seeing tons of art. And I was really interested in the internet and its potential as a new space for art making. I had been really influenced by Alan Capro and happenings and making art in everyday life. And I was like, this is the new everyday life. I just had the sense that there was lots of other people who were interested in that, in the sort of overlapping zone between emerging media technologies like the internet and virtual reality and contemporary art practices. And most of us weren't lucky enough to get to Linz, Austria and Rotterdam for these meetups. But because we were, not everybody had email addresses at that time or even knew what the web was. It's like 1995, right? Netscape had just gone public. Like the whole dot-com thing hadn't happened yet. But I was like, if there ever was an online community waiting to happen, it's not going to be like, you know, an international community of carpenters because they weren't online yet. But new media artists and curators and others for sure. So the first thing I did was start an email list. That's kind of to the internet in 1995 as maybe like Instagram is today. It's how people communicated. And then my idea was to save, it's like an online conversation where I invited people to post their thoughts and share ideas and information about contemporary art and emerging Via technologies. email. You had this yeah. email list that you yeah. built starting with family and friends and then just Not reached- family so much as just like, I've always was an inveterate collector of contact information. Well, because you're talking about it, how it's a little archaic, but in this day and age, as we are launching the art career and talking to so many colleagues who are launching new businesses, email list building is the, I mean, over social media, over, over anything that really is especially if you're coming from a sales perspective, Mm -hmm. the way to go. The difference being, though, that these email lists, people call them listservs, were for many-to-many communication. They were for conversation. So it wasn't wasn't like a megaphone. It's like a text chain via email. Yeah. I mean, there still are. Maybe you're in a Google group for something. You know, like my building in where I live, we have a Google group and people... Post yeah. things and talk about things. So it's a conversation. And so I kicked off this conversation. I had to jumpstart it by, yeah, inviting everybody I had ever met who was in the art world or in any art world to post stuff. And I would, you know, nudge my friends and say, hey, you know, I know you saw that show. Would you write about it? Or I know you did this project. Will you post about it? But pretty soon there was like this pent up need. It started to snowball. And the idea then was to have a website that archived the, where we would save basically the the relevant posts, like not the noise, but the signal, mm-hmm. tag them with some keywords. We put it all in a database and made it searchable. So now it's like the simple idea of community-generated content, which is like the cornerstone of YouTube and, you know, TikTok and everything else. So we were one of the first yeah. to do that. I mean, not the first, but one of them. Mm-hmm. Art Forum was top-down, right? And the editor, the editorial staff, then they had certain staff writers and stringers. And people would pitch things to them, but basically it was controlled centrally. And my idea was to turn that upside down and have it be bottom up, like a grassroots network. 
grass is, is a kind of a rhizome, a horizontally distributed network. It's a metaphor used by these French post-structuralist theorists by named Deleuze and Guattari. The first chapter of their wonderful book, Thousand Plateaus, is called Rhizome. So when I was looking for a name for this thing I wanted to start, I, like a friend of mine, had given me this book to take with me to Germany, and I pulled it off the shelf in my coal-heated studio with my gloves still on and started flipping through the index, and that word rhizome just jumped out. And I was like, oh, perfect. And guess what? Back then, those domains were available. And it's kind of off to the races. It started out as a dot-com, moved to New York from Berlin, started in Berlin, and pretty soon realized it should be nonprofit, so transitioned to be a dot-org and started writing grants, got some. We also did community fundraising, so we'd ask all of our subscribers to make contributions using credit cards online or sending in checks. I think we were among the very first nonprofits to raise money online in that way from a community of people. We were like, no amount is too small, $5, great. And so we would get you know thousands of tiny contributions and then big grants from Rockefeller and Warhol. And you know we got the NEA. I think in the first year we were a nonprofit was 1998. We raised like $400,000 in big chunk grants. So let me just pause for a second. You're how old? I started when I started when I was 29. So how are you making money at this point? Because right. this so all I, sounds very nice. Yeah, in Berlin. Yeah, I had a job, freelance web design. Okay. You know, started rising in Berlin. Realized very quickly there was too much friction there. I had a bunch of friends from Brown who had started dot coms in New York. Okay. You know, I would go to commercial galleries in Berlin. There already were quite a few, although the the big influx from Cologne hadn't really quite happened. Yeah. But you know, and they just didn't want to have anything to do with me. I kept getting the cold shoulder and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start my own parallel art world or create a platform for this parallel art world that's more of a meritocracy, whether the gatekeepers are not coming between artists and each other and their audiences. But you don't have to get a curator or a gallerist to say, okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity. No, you just take the You just send, you know, put something online, send the URL, and people all over the world can see it. I love that idea of flattening out hierarchies but I also thought, you know, I didn't see myself as a cultural entrepreneur or arts administrator forever. I thought, you know, I'm going to do this for a while, mm-hmm. get it to the point where I can hand it off. I thought that would take about three years. It took seven. And fortunately, I developed a relationship with the New Museum of Contemporary Art. And then when I was looking to leave Rhizome, I was then also looking for a kind of institutional home for it to give it more stability. Thankfully, Lisa and the new museum board really respected Rhizome's autonomy. And we crafted this relationship where Rhizome is still an independent 501c3 with its own board of directors. New museum people are represented on the board. Uh, Rhizome is housed there. Offices are at, were originally at the museum. Now they're at New Inc., their incubator next door. The new museum has provided some staff support. We were able to basically share a development officer, a fundraiser, and accounting and backend stuff like that. But that gave Rhizome the stability for me to step down as director, remain on the board, and then go start teaching. So I started looking Best for teaching Best case jobs. scenario to have it still remain alive. Amazing and be able that it worked to... out that way. I'm really, really grateful to, to Lisa Phillips, Lisa Rumel, who was then associate director of the new museum and is still on the Rhizome board. And it's been a kind of too good to be true, pinch yourself relationship. Usually when that happens in life, there's a reason it's ha- it happens and you deserve it. Part of the reason why it's thrived is that I stepped down as director. I mean, I, I wanted to for sort of selfish reasons, yeah. but I see again and again these artists-run nonprofits yeah. or organizations that where the founder stays so long that it becomes really super identified with them. So then it's very hard for them to survive the transition. New Museum survived it really well when Marsha Tucker left, but sometimes it's it's very difficult, like with exit art. So every few years, Rhizome has hired another, usually like even younger director. So they continue to evolve it and it somehow it remains relevant. continues to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. For you, you know, I'm very intrigued. We've had many conversations about the importance of self-growth. We've even been in the same meditation group together pre-pandemic. I know, like myself, how much time you spend trying to be a more present, gentler person. And it's not easy for either one of us sometimes. Can you talk a little about this self-reflective journey you've been on for the majority of your life and how it's 
affected your career trajectory, your art. I just know it's such an important part of your life. So the other day I was cleaning out, going through a box in my basement, and I found this folded up wad of lined, like college-ruled paper in a binder. And it had some journal pages that I'd torn out of another book when I was 20 years old. And I I still do this to this day. I had, you know, I was like reflecting on my life and talking about my priorities and how I wanted to be spending my time. And it was exactly the same thing as it is today. It blew my mind. Because I, looking back, I thought I was an immature, clueless kid. And in fact, I was like, I want to spend more time in the wilderness. I want to spend more time meditating. I want to make art. You know, someday I want to have a family. And when I read that, I was stunned because I didn't think that I already had those kinds of priorities. Because in fact, I, you know, always lived in big cities. I was a real party kid, spent a lot of time in smoky basements in Berlin until four in the morning and in LA and other places. Are you currently a party adult or has there been a shift with that in your life as well? Yeah. After my first daughter was born, I stopped all that stuff. So you're sober. Yeah. And I get to bed at a reasonable hour most nights and get up early to make Isabel's lunch before she heads off to high school and that kind of thing and walk the dog. And I still find it hard to find time to meditate every day or to meditate for long enough. For me with meditation, I think like three minutes is infinitely better than none, but there is kind of a minimum effective dose and it's more like 30 minutes. For me, it's 10 minutes. I mean, I can't do anything less than 10, but if I can you know, on a super chaotic day, squeeze in 10 minutes in the morning and in the evening, that's a good day. The 30-minute days are really good. Mm -hmm. I think also, you know, I'm part of the reason why I wanted to start making these kinds of landscape pictures that I'm making now, though, too, including the, we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm making these long, 24-hour long recordings, 4K video recordings with sound of wild forests as a kind of landscape picture. And that project and and making the paintings brought together my lifelong devotion to being in wilderness, especially woods and mountains, and my contemporary art practice. So I get to go deep into the woods and do like expeditions and explore as a way of location scouting. So that was also like part of what led me to commit to, the, to doing this because it's a lot of, it's a big challenge to, you know, to, to make the work and to, you know, figure out ways to pay for it, to fund the production and, and all that and to place it in museum collections is that it allows me to bring together these two sides of my life that before were really separated, you mm-hmm. know, the, the city, the art world, the social life and quiet and and solitude of the woods. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. We'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast.
So Mark, hearing you speak and knowing you, how I genuinely know you, you've been very fortunate throughout your life. But I also know your struggles and I also know how incredibly hard you've worked throughout your career. So can you talk a little bit about, we touched upon it, you know, when you were in Berlin, starting Rhizome, transferred to a nonprofit, you know, how how are you making money during this? All of my great-grandparents, three out of four of my grandparents immigrated to this country with nothing or next to nothing. You know, my father was born in Shanghai on the eve of World War II. You know, his dad spent the duration of the war in a Japanese prison camp, came to the United States speaking almost no English, and then ended up somehow going to Harvard before he turned 17, becoming a professor at Harvard Law School, and then making, you know, a very good living as an idealistic Supreme Court advocate. And I didn't graduate from college or grad school with debt, and I had their support. And I wasn't covering 100% of my expenses in Berlin or in New York when I first moved there. That support, which is, you know, partly financial and partly, you know, moral, that my parents supported what I was doing and encouraged me and gave me lots of good advice. You know, I didn't have the kind of parents that were always complaining that I didn't go to medical school mm-hmm. or study computer science or something like that, or follow in my father's footsteps and become a lawyer. I think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, although my ethnic heritage is complex and I don't come from generations of privilege, I live in this world as a white man with a lot of that privilege. You know, that combined with my ed- education made a lot of things easier for me. There were way fewer obstacles. I didn't really fully realize it, I don't think, all the time, because I always felt like, oh, I'm marginalized, I'm an outsider because of my interests, or, you know, life is so hard, and I did that whole stupid compare and despair thing, because it always seemed like there was somebody else who was doing better. I still sometimes feel that way. Nonetheless, uh, I have to acknowledge that, yeah, you know, I've accomplished a lot and I have worked hard, but I did have a lot of advantages along the way. And you have me to remind you about those advantages all the time, right? Sure. Uh, No, I appreciate you speaking about that because... And being male, too. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, if you think about all the different... (laughs) I think of them as kind of like vectors of oppression or, you know, we, we understand now that identity is intersectional and in all the ways in which I could be disadvantaged or marginalized. Yeah. You know, I'm not queer. I'm not... I'm cisgender, I'm straight, I'm of European descent, and at least identified as white, male, et cetera, you know, highly educated. So all those things, I guess, have have been the opposite of barriers. They've been privileges along the way. Thank you for that. I also think it's important to, you know, know how active you are in academia and helping artists that don't have the privilege that you did? I don't think of it as helping, but just trying to make the places I work more equitable, fairer, more inclusive. Which is helping. I mean, it is, you know, I mean, that's... I just don't think anybody's asking me for help. It's more like just trying to do the right thing every step of the way. I mean, I ask you for help all the time. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. You know, my, my, my mother was always very politically engaged, always had diverse friends and peers. She herself, even though she's 100% German, as far as we know, experienced racism because she was constantly misidentified. Giving constructive feedback is fundamental to leading organizations and growing emerging artists, obviously. In several capacities, you're a critic, which is another one of your major talents. You have done so much. As an advisor and friend, you've even critiqued my ideas for better or worse. As a leader, mentor, and teacher, how do you approach critique? I mean, I know how you approach critique, and I critique how you approach critique, but let's talk about that a little bit. I'd like to think, with a few exceptions, that my approach to critique has evolved a lot over the past 20-so years since I started teaching. When I first started teaching, I was really harsh and blunt, Occasionally I still am, but I try not to be. I found it really hard to say kind, supportive, and helpful things. I was a tough teacher. When I was a professor at Brown, 
some of the students who really were into me as a professor and took a lot of my classes. And I think they said this fondly, but they they said when somebody got a harsh critique that they had gotten tribed. Now I, I've come a long way, I hope, in trying to be kinder and more supportive to try to see the wonder in every artist's creativity, to meet them where they are, to be encouraging, and to offer suggestions, but always with the caveat of, you know, this is just my take. I think this is, you know, this is a a tough topic because, you know, with, with power comes responsibility, obviously. And when you are the person critiquing someone else's work, for me, I think there's, it's very important to be honest always. And I don't, I mean, I obviously think there's a kinder, gentler way to get tribed, like you said. But also I think part of what I love about you is that really raw, brutal honesty. And being an artist isn't for everyone. And even for me, there are some things in life professionally where I've actually needed people like you. It's, it's been you. It's been several others. Like this isn't, this just isn't working. And it wouldn't have been beneficial to hear anything other than that. When I was teaching at Brown, I developed what I called a critical method, which it turns out is very, very similar to critical methods employed, employed by other experienced art teachers all over the place, from Mary Kelly, who taught, or maybe she still, still teaches at UCLA for a long time, very influential okay. art teacher, to you know, faculty I know at UCSD who have been teaching art for 20, 30 years. Always begin with observation and description. Okay. Kind of like you're a, a detective or investigator trying to get the facts of the case. You're gathering evidence. Then you try to assemble that. You describe what you see, what you hear, what you feel. And from that, you start to draw conclusions, interpretation, analysis, how do pieces fit together? What's it about? What does it remind you of? And only then do you move to evaluation, what's working well, what's not working so well, and then finally, possibly, suggestions. So often, it happens in reverse. I really like the way you are X, Y, Z, or have you thought about trying that? And then you're short-circuiting or sh- this opportunity to be mindful and attentive, to pay attention and see what emerges from that process of careful engagement. So what I would do with my students is we would have, we would begin with description. And if somebody tried to use a qualitative adjective, like I really like how, or I love, I would say, oh, well, you know, just describe first. And sometimes that works really well. Sometimes it's not necessary, but. I'm looking at a landscape with lush green, I mean that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, there, you can also, you know, read the checklist to see what the materials are, the title. You can bring in what you what you already know, too, as part of assembling evidence. But, you know, the detective doesn't bring a case to the district attorney or the prosecutor until they feel like there's they figured out what, what happened. So that, but, but then doing that in a spirit of generosity and support, trying to figure out what they're trying to do. My approach to teaching has really gone from being judgmental Mm. to being grounded, I think, in respect and admiration for the courage of any any person that chooses to be an artist. And I refer to it as a pedagogy of love, not romantic love, which would be totally inappropriate, but more like that Greek word agape, which is a kind of, you know, brotherly love, or in this case, teacherly love for, like, it's unconditional acceptance and unconditional positive regard for the student and what they're trying to do. They deserve to be there. And my job is to be helpful. I, I heard these rumors about this professor at Rhode Island School of Design who would go around at the beginning of a, cri- of a critique and tear drawings off the wall. 
I mean, that's think- just abusive and that would never happen now. But yeah, I'm sure there's been a lot of that. Yeah. So that's, that's the art of critique as far as I'm concerned. Mark, I would love to touch upon your teaching career and what that's meant for you and what it means to be a teacher and an artist within your career. Well, there's lots of different places you can teach as an artist. I have most experience teaching in colleges and, and universities in art programs and art schools. Do you have a teaching degree? You just have a... You have Masters a- of Fine Arts. If you want to teach at the college level, it's either just a, a bachelor's degree or hopefully a, a master's or in some cases a, a PhD. Most of our faculty have MFAs at SVA. Some only have bachelor's degrees and professional equivalents. Thing is, there are fewer tenure track and full-time positions than there were 20 years ago, but they do still exist. Openings come up every year, and I do know people who get those jobs. And I do think it is reasonable if you're an artist and trying to figure out how to support yourself, pay the rent or pay the mortgage, Mm -hmm. to try to have income from teaching be part or all of your financial security. A lot of people teach you know, a few courses adjunct, that is part-time, without a lot of job security. And in addition to that, they may sell some art or earn money through commissions. They may also do various kinds of you know, consulting or contract labor, from being art handlers or installing art to working as artist assistants. It certainly is easier to put together that kind of mix if you live in a big city where there's a lot of art, like New York or LA, London, Paris, Berlin. But it's also possible elsewhere. And if you are looking to have a career in education and to teach full-time with like a year-round salary and benefits and all that, that's generally a tenure-track teaching job, which would lead to tenure. And jobs like that are really hard to come by in the big art capitals because there's so many artists and so few jobs. Sure. So having some flexibility and being open to moving and teaching in a place like, you know, Bloomington, Indiana at IU can be helpful. For me, I was fortunate in that what I did with Rhizome gave me, that was my primary professional accomplishment that qualified me to get my first teaching jobs at Williams and then Columbia and then Brown, more than my artistic practice per se, or my curatorial experience. I mean, I had done some of that, but what made me competitive was that I had started Rhizome and I'd become something of an expert in this field that at that time was really underrepresented on faculties. So there was there were a lot of openings for new media and digital art jobs. And at that time I was, you know, well qualified for that. So I often tell students when they're finishing up art school or just emerging artists who are thinking about, you know, how do I make it in the world? How do I get anybody to notice me? How do I stand out? if I want to get a teaching job or something else, often it's to think of yourself as a cultural entrepreneur to do something that's really focused on providing opportunities to other artists. That then puts you at the center of a kind of professional network or friend work, a sharing economy where you're helping others. They then are open to helping you. My reputation came from doing Rhizome, which wasn't really about me. And whether it's a gallery, an artist-run gallery like Minuspace, where we're sitting right now, or a blog, or a salon, a publication, an event series, a solidarity group. There's lots and lots of opportunities for artists who have ideas and energy to be a part of inventing the art world that they want to participate in, looking for what's not being offered, looking for the communities that, that are lacking in opportunities for people who are underserved or excluded or, or, or marginalized or, you know, things that institutions that have been around for a while don't know how to do. What I think is so exciting about the art career is that you're putting the focus on helping people think about how to develop the professional skills and knowledge to thrive in a really rapidly changing art world, whether it's as artists or as curators or gallerists or advisors, I suppose. And that's something we think a lot, I think about a lot at, at SVA. You know, when I was in 
my master's of fine arts, you know, wonderful experience at UCSD. We didn't have a single course on how to work with galleries, how to write a proper artist statement or resume. It was kind of before all artists had websites, but you know, how to use the internet. And now most art schools have like a course. I felt like it was if they have one, you know? And so what we did was develop a whole section of the curriculum, these professional development workshops. They're seven weeks long and really focused. They're really applied and practical. So we have one on, on applying for grants and residencies, in which you actually apply for a grant or a residency. We have one on, you know, online presence, actually taught by Matthew Delegate, which where you either improve your website or you make one by the end of the seven weeks. And I just think that's super important. And there's no reason to me why that shouldn't be included. An MFA fine arts is a professional degree, and I don't feel that it's too vocational. We don't teach skills, like art-making skills. We don't have drawing classes or, or video editing skills. To me, that is best taught at the undergraduate level. But if you're getting an MFA and you graduate and don't know how to navigate a relationship with an institution around a commission or an exhibition, you know, that's, that's an issue. And it's hard to sort of figure that stuff out on your own. And I really, I mean, SVA is doing a fantastic job of this, thankfully. And unfortunately, the majority of artists, as you know, I do studio visits all the time with very recent MFA grads. And that was what really propelled me towards building the art career because the majority of these recent graduates really didn't have that knowledge at all. And I would imagine I have an MA, not an MFA, not an artist, but what a vulnerable, sometimes awful, especially if you're in a bit I mean, like New York, right? To graduate and not have that structured support of knowledge as essentially a can call it a small business owner, you know, being able to navigate the world outside of your studio. Right. So I didn't get that residency in Berlin. Yes. And I just bought a ticket and slept on my in my friend's studio for the first month, right? And but that's everything, right? I think that is the difference between people who succeed and people who don't succeed. It helps to be a, a bit of an extrovert or to be able to at least sort of fake it. But I don't know if it has to do with being an introvert or an extrovert. I think it's about just making that move and pivoting and going in the side door and yeah. something fails, taking on something else. It's it's like, um, I don't know what word I would use to describe that. Well, what is they that? say that fortune favors the bulls, yeah. right? And a lot of artists are shy and, and introverted and are most comfortable in their studio making stuff. Yeah. And for artists like that, who, who have the, that kind of personality, I usually suggest, you know, don't waste your time going to crowded openings that are terrifying. You know, spend time with people one-on-one. -on -one. You know, I think it's really about friendship, not networking. It's not about mutual exploitation. But it's, it's still about, about getting out there and meeting the people. Sure. Yeah. When I first moved to Berlin, I knew very few people. And I do remember sometimes just kind of introducing myself in a hopefully not too pushy, but probably very American way. Yeah. And then like trying to get their phone number or email address so I could follow up and invite myself over or ask them if they wanted to go see a show or something. And I just did that again and again and again. And I felt quite lonely a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, thinking back on my career, the most influential people in my life that have mentored me are also really close friends as well. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing we're talking about. It's not, um, how did you describe it? Well, there's sort of the, this idea that I'll let you use me if if you let me use you. Right. And uh, like mutual exploitation. Yes. I do not believe in that. I think that's fundamentally unethical. I think you look for people who you like and respect. And then do that with. And then help each other. Of course. You Which. Right. But it can be one thing and the other and be coming from a really positive, beautiful place. Of generosity. Yes. Of generosity, not exploitation. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. You're not trying to extract value from a relationship. No. And you have to be willing to, to help and give selflessly. Selflessly. 
without any without expecting payback. anything. It's like the karmic piggy bank. It's not totally. You know, the, the payback can come as you said through the side door, in some way you never expected. I love that. Any emerging artists on your radar right now? I saw so much exciting work at the recent New Museum Triennial. Out of I think they sh- there were forty four artists in that show. I only knew the work of one of them, Jess Fan, and that was because a student had presented on their work, you know, in 2021. So it was all new for you. Yeah, and that to me was a sign of curators doing their homework, doing the research, and not just, you know, giving another opportunity to the usual suspects. That was really exciting. The recent Whitney Biennial as well, did, you know, was was strong in that regard. It wasn't just sort of following the, the market. Agreed. And, you know, the art world remains a very hierarchical place in which as an artist, one always feels like there are way more artists than there are opportunities. That said, I do think that galleries and museums and art schools are trying sincerely to be more inclusive and to be more open-minded than 10 or 20 years ago. And it's a slow process. A lot of these institutions, universities, art schools, galleries, especially large ones, museums are really hierarchical. I see change. Even the surrealism show at the Metropolitan Museum was radically different from what you would have seen in a surrealism show at a major encyclopedic museum like that 20 years ago. Radically different. I think so. Yeah, in a good I do way. too. Absolutely. That was an exciting show. Saw tons of work I'd never heard of. Mm-hmm. Me too. That I wasn't aware of. So, yeah, I I can't recommend any specific artists, but they're out there. Mark, I can't thank you enough for being here with us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast, S-U-P-E-R-C-A-S-T.com. And please don't forget to rate and review. Every rating counts. Thanks so much.